Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with a professor of history who's also an economist, Adam Tooze. His book is Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Then Dr. Erica Smith from the Belgian company Tools for Patient. You likely know that in drug trials, some participants aren't actually given the drug being tested. She'll explain how to identify a positive response even when the person received nothing. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about how to create what he calls a check engine light for your body. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2017, I spoke with Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies. I asked him, in this information age, we now have big data. We've got big data analytics. Do we also have big lies? Well, I guess we do. Um, people are getting away with bigger and bigger lies, it seems. And they're, I think what I'm mostly interested in is that there's more and more false information than ever before. That um, misinformation and pseudoscience seem to be proliferating like there's no tomorrow. And I think the problem with that is that misinformation is promiscuous. It just ends up in all different kinds of places. You don't know where it's been. You don't know where it's going. Don't or touch who, it. <laughs> exactly. And you don't know who it's going to be with next. Exactly. You know, I, I wrote this book as a very practical guide. There's not any theory in there, nothing about what the brain's doing when this goes on. It's just these are the steps to follow if you're above the age of 12 or so. And you want to know how to make sense out of things. It's it's what we would classically call critical thinking uh, that most of us haven't been trained to do. Uh, lawyers, scientists, journalists are trained to do it. But the rest of us are often left at the mercy of people who are really good at spinning a story or taking advantage of us. Elementary school arithmetic. Add up all the percentages on the pie chart. They're supposed to equal 100. Fox News got it wrong in your example. Yeah, they published this pie chart of who was supporting whom in uh, the uh, Romney presidential election. And you look at the numbers, and they add up to way more than 100%. Now, I can imagine how that happened. It might be they asked people in a poll, who do you support? And people were allowed to give more than one name. But then don't make a pie chart. <laughs> There's a problem with averages, isn't there? An average is a distortion of reality because you're taking a whole bunch of data points, anywhere from a few to dozens to millions, and you're trying to summarize them with a single number, right? It, it, you know, that can be useful, but it can also lead to a distortion. I think people need to know. The next time you see an average, ask yourself, um, is it reasonable to take an average of this thing? Or could it be that we're combining apples and oranges or testicles and ovaries in this case, right? I mean, yes, on average, humans have one testicle, but that's that's not really a well-formed way to summarize the human race. In a real sense, even with the simple statistics, one of the things you're asking is, first of all, look at the data. What is the data that they're looking at? And what kinds of things about that data are important to see? 
Exactly. And I, I mean, there, there are some fundamental things you can ask, such as, are we comparing apples and oranges? Is it a, a fair comparison? Especially when we're dealing with averages. Just to take another example, suppose you're a salesperson uh, or you know, you're a real estate agent or you're, um, you're a stockbroker and you hear that there's a room over here. And in that room, the average uh, wealth of people in the room is $5 billion each. Now you're thinking, oh, I got to get in there. But what if the room has <laughs> peeps to sell things to? <laughs> right. What if the room has Warren Buffett and 19 homeless people? Not all homeless people are poor, of course. Again, you don't want to make any assumptions or jump to conclusions. But let's say that this particular group of 19 homeless people have a net worth of zero, and you got Warren Buffett, who knows what his net worth is. The average wealth in that room is very high, but. I'm not sure that's a meaningful summary. You're comparing two different groups. It'd be like telling me the average height of a room full of NBA players and five-year-olds. This 2017 Tech Nation interview features Daniel Levitin, the author of A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. A neuroscientist, musician, and record producer, you might also remember him from one of his earlier books, including This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Adam Tews, a professor of history at Columbia University. We'll talk about the 2020 shutdown of the global economy due to COVID. Then Dr. Erica Smith from Tools for Patient talks about identifying a high placebo response from participants in clinical trials. All because we're human and we want these treatments to work. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, considers how to create a check engine light for your body. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global on the web at mindk.com. And now, Adam Tews. Adam, welcome to Tech Nation. Good, good to be here. So this baby wasn't planned. I mean, the book wasn't planned. No, it really wasn't. No, I was, I was like, I mean, like most people, 2020 and COVID changed my plans. I, I, was, I was writing a different book about the climate crisis, and then all of a sudden everything changed, and uh, I just found myself sucked. I think by way of my previous book about the 2008 financial crisis into trying to think through, I mean, it was, a, you know, obviously a kind of collective effort to try and make sense of what happened last year. And um, I found myself in the midst of that and not really able to continue with my original plan. So then I, so they, I pivoted to trying to do this instead. Now, let's get our listeners oriented to your view of the world. Now, your degrees are in economics. Your PhD is from the London School of Economics. But you're at Columbia now, and you're a professor of history. How does that work? 
Um, I mean, I think it works because history is a relatively undisciplined discipline. And so we tend to welcome people from all sorts of backgrounds. I have colleagues who are linguists or archaeologists, anthropologists, doctors, lawyers, um, all of whom are also historians. And, um, you know, there are certain sort of basic skills that historians need, like being able to work in archives. And you have to be curious about, well, often the classic way to come into this, certainly the way I did, was being interested in things that happened in the past. That, that may sound obvious, but... But here I am having written a book about yesterday or even today. And so I think, you know, the thing in the end that unifies us historians is that we're interested in the, you know, the passage of time, the, the experience of living through change. And, and obviously you can study that at a distance. And that's one way of, you know, obviously things have changed since the medieval period. But I mean, in 2020 is also a sort of a case study, a laboratory, a natural experiment in thinking about dramatic change you know in real time and and that's the, the challenge of writing a book like like shutdown one of the first interesting things you say in the book is that covid was not a black swan it was a gray rhino what's a black swan and what's a gray rhino well these are these sort of i don't know exactly where these these images come from but Black swans began to be discussed very actively in the wake of 2008 because black swans are sort of truly unusual radical things that come along and that surprise you and gray rhinos are things which you know are there but by virtue of their grayness sort of blend in and so you know even though you know that the ominous menacing silhouette of this giant animal with a big horn is there you somehow fail to see it against its background so they're two different types of of shock, two different types of risk, two different types of surprise that you can be hit by. And um, the idea is that, that you know, that there's an element of exculpation, of apology, of apologetics in talking about black swans, because you're saying, you know, we couldn't really be expected to anticipate this. This was a black swan. Whereas the thing about a grey rhino is it robs you of your excuses. You basically just weren't paying attention. Um, because you actually did know it was there. And that, that's exactly what's true about, you know, pandemic risk is for 50 years, virologists, epidemiologists have been warning us that something like this could happen. And we've sort of gotten used to them going on about this. And we kind of found boxes to put this into. And there was a very serious sort of bioterrorism box, but they were terrorism experts or there was sort of Hollywood shocker type box, um, you know, an Ebola type disease that would spread around the world and have us all spouting blood. And then there were just the people who focused on things like flu and influenza, who just calmly told us that, you know, every year millions of people die of this, we should take it more seriously. And they were the, they were the people ultimately who were dramatically vindicated by what we went through. Now, one of my favorite sentences is, economists cooked up new statistical indicators. Of course, I wanted to put a period right there, but you didn't. You said to track the uncertainty that was dogging investment. So professional confession here, economists cook up these uh, statistical indices. How do we get our arms around this global economy? Why did they have to look to new indicators? Well, this is a passage that refers to the period before 2020, because it would be, it would be wrong to you know, say that 2020 was just about the pandemic. In fact, lots of the time, it, you know, we didn't really manage to focus on the pandemic at all. And, and the argument of the book is precisely that to grasp what happened in 2020, we have to understand how 
the pandemic intersected with what you might call the sort of old familiar dynamics of crisis, politics, economic instability, geopolitics. And it's literally the case that um, in 2019, central bank economists set themselves to trying to explain why we were seeing a downturn in investment globally. And one of the plausible reasons that investment might shrink is that investors feel less confident that they understand the world. And so you need to devise measures by cooking up. I don't mean any kind. I mean, I, I, I love cooking. <laughs> cooking is a productive exercise. It's not a deceptive exercise. It's how you make things out of you know ingredients. So they set themselves to stewing up some new indicators with which they would be able to capture some uncertainty. And if you continue the phrase that you were reading out, it goes on to say something along the lines of that the evidence all pointed to the fact that the major source of uncertainty in the world that was hampering investment was located in the White House. And, and they, they more or less, I mean, these are Fed economists, I think, that were involved in doing this. So there's a limit to how far they can go. But they were basically saying that Donald Trump's tweets were destabilizing global investment. <laughs> Well, the changes in the global economy in 2020 did not happen on a blank slate. There were already economic challenges in a number of places on the planet to start with. Let's go there. Absolutely. So, I mean, in, in 2019, what we saw was was a pretty serious recession in, in global manufacturing, um, which we think is, can be traced back to the trade wars. Europe in particular was already in, in some serious trouble, so much so that the central bank was doing wildly unpopular things like resuming the purchase of assets, which stirred up the conservatives no end. For, for those who were really sort of in the wonky weeds on the financial markets, there was a very nasty incident in the repo market, which is the market where you refinance your purchase of American treasuries in the fall of 2019 which was really shocking and an anticipation of some of the, the fallout that we saw in the spring of 2020. If you cast your net wider and you look you look at the world as a whole, really the, the grand story that in the early 2000s really inspired people when they were thinking about the world economy was the growth of the emerging markets, BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And most of those, um, Russia, Brazil, India, uh, South Africa, were by 2019 in some degree of trouble, to be honest. If they were driven by the commodity boom, then they had slowed down in 2014. South Africa has been suffering from governance issues for ages. Brazil was in severe recession from 2014, and China itself had had a serious wobble in 15-16. And if you go even further down, if you like, the hierarchy of the global economy, many of the low-income countries, which in the previous years had gone on a kind of burst of enthusiastic borrowing in world markets were in fact finding themselves in, in debt distress already in 2019. So if you look at the reports, and this is like putting my historian's hat on and saying let's time travel back to early 2020 before we knew what was going to happen next. If you look at the reports from say the IMF in January 2020, they're already hedging, they're already saying look, you know, we're not at panic stations yet, but if you know, the wrong things happen here. If the dice go the wrong way in the coming year, it could get very bad quite quickly. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Adam Tooze, a professor of history at Columbia University. You might remember him from his 2018 book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. He's here today with Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Well, just when we need the best biopharmaceutical minds in the world to all work together and the companies to work together. We have Brexit. 
in the middle of all this. The European medicines agencies moved from London to Amsterdam to apply for drug and vaccine approvals. It's no longer in English, but French and German. How would Brexit be one of these these coincidences that it was just an unfortunate time? Well, it, it really was. In fact, the big news in the spring of 2020 was that Brexit was finally, finally, finally consummated. So, I mean, Britain leaves the EU into the midst of the pandemic. And I don't think there's any doubt that on the part of the, you know, the Boris Johnson set in control in London at that moment, their, their eyes were really not on the pandemic. They had pulled off what to them, of course, is an extraordinary coup, something they'd embarked on five years earlier with their push to push, you know, to win the Brexit referendum. And they'd finally gotten there and it had been a long haul. And there really is a sense that, that Whitehall, the centre of you know, the bureaucracy in Britain at that moment, was just not focused on, on the pandemic. And you, you see this in Boris Johnson's speeches at the time. Um, I don't know how much should be read into this in a sense that you know, the, the British government is not the only one that failed to understand the urgency of the situation. Everyone had their own particular reasons, if you like. But certainly in the British case, it didn't help. And uh, tens of thousands of civil servants in Britain were, in fact, you know, deep in the question of how we figured out the customs bureaucracy and precisely those kind of issues of multilingual paperwork that you referred to. Of course, we hear a lot about China and a lot about where did COVID come from. But what about the Chinese economy? We had been hearing so much about it. We don't know where it went. Talk to us about China. So... so China is the first victim of the of the crisis. I mean, it's worth stressing this because um, China has come back very strongly. Um, its economy resumed growth really in the second half of 2020, and you know, in some ways, you could say that China has won the crisis. But if you had stopped the clock in February 2020, you would you would have to have concluded that this was the worst shock to have hit China since the beginning of the reform period in the early 1980s. Um, and for the Communist Party, which, you know, which is a ruthless authoritarian organisation, which doesn't put a high value on life, you might think, to have suffered this was in fact humiliating, because though they do have that sort of disregard of individual life and rights, their commitment to sustaining public health is in fact dramatic. This is one of the things which the party promises to have delivered to the Chinese population. It's an essential part of the China dream, so-called. So this was a shattering blow to them. And it, it wasn't just political um, or moral or issue, issue of legitimacy. The, the Chinese economy, to contain the virus, goes through the most sudden and dramatic shutdown um, that the world had seen up to that point. By mid-February, the Chinese economy is basically ground to a halt. They're coy, as you might think, uh, about you know unemployment data, but our best estimates suggest that maybe 20% 20 20 plus of the Chinese workforce was unemployed. They have a huge informal sector of migrants from the countryside and small towns and villages to the big cities, and many of those workers never returned to work after the New Year's holiday. Um, there was a rather anguished conversation within the party leadership, we gather, about the fact that roughly 600 million Chinese live at levels of income which are poor by any reasonable standard. They're not abjectly poor. That is something the regime is proud of having overcome. But 600 million people live at very low levels of income. And all of those people work in, on the whole in small businesses, in face-to-face -face service sector, and they were, they were 
hugely impacted by this crisis. And China does not have a generous welfare state to compensate or offset this. So though, you know, the big numbers, the GDP numbers, the industrial production data and so on suggest a rapid recovery. And, and if you know people who live and work in China, you, you will know that from the summer of 2020, they pretty much went back to normal. There is lasting damage to Chinese society and the Chinese economy from that moment. You also talk about the scale of stabilizing interventions in 2020. Give us an inkling of what you're talking about. Well, I mean, the thing about the COVID crisis and why it's important, I think, to, as it were, go back to that moment is that it is as though, if you look at the US economy, it hadn't happened. So if you look at the growth of American GDP, the biggest standard measures of you know economic output and so on, they're actually now headed to levels slightly above where we expected them to be before the crisis. So it's literally as though nothing happened. And in fact, somehow we've somehow speeded up. But that remarkable outcome, that kind of erasure of the crisis moment is the result of absolutely epic interventions, um, a combination of fiscal policy, so taxing and spending policy on the one hand and monetary policy on the other. And and without those, God, frankly, God knows where we would have been. We, 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 it's difficult to imagine because what was threatening in the second and third week of March 2020 in the US was a full-on meltdown of the financial system, in some ways even worse than what happened in 2008. And then what followed as we spiraled into the shutdown moment in April and May was a gigantic social crisis. So tens of millions of Americans lost their jobs. They were threatened with homelessness if they hadn't, if they'd been evicted, they couldn't pay rent. People, millions of families fell behind with mortgage payments. And but for the large scale intervention of the federal government, um, you know, we would have seen a social crisis on a scale last seen in the 1930s. I mean, no one is likely to forget once you put, take yourself back to that moment, these extraordinary images of people queuing up in their cars for food packages, you know, in big cities across the United States. So the role of the counterbalancing action is, in a sense, is, is utterly crucial to understanding what actually happened. It's not somehow a little wrinkle or a little augmentation here or there. We, we would absolutely not be in the place that we currently are, but for, well, historically unprecedented spending, tax cuts and central bank intervention. And that's in the U.S. You said worldwide, three billion people were either furloughed or attempted to work from home. Isn't that the entire workforce? It's about 90 percent. Yeah. And the same goes for um, uh, young people's education, um, 1.6 to 1.8 billion people. Um, those aren't numbers, to be honest, that I knew before the crisis. I, I had never asked myself, what is the global labor force? Because the global labor force is an abstract concept that, generally speaking, doesn't really have a very meaningful, you know, it's not doesn't really have a, a, a meaning. It's not very significant because the global labor force is divided into pools of, you know, complex interwoven mesh of the division of labor globally. And what was so extraordinary about March 2020 is that you could actually say something meaningful about the entire group. Um <laughs> which is kind of unique in, in history. I mean, never before have all of the young people of the entire world been furloughed from education at the same time. I and mean, we, we've only recently attained a situation in which the overwhelming majority of young people actually go to school. And to suddenly be in a situation in which they're all furloughed is is just staggering. There's a, there's a bit of me that kind of thought, you know, the globe is somehow going to become unbalanced because we're not walking, you know, we're not moving around in the way that we normally do. There's a, there's a weird sense in which things stopped. Um, 
you know, it doesn't spell out to the same equivalent kind of shock at the GDP level, because a lot of economic activity, much of the most high valued economic activity continued on. Um, but nevertheless, we had a, you know, a 20% hit um, to global GDP, we think by the second week of April, that that which again, is not something we've ever seen before in that short of space of time in the 30s recession, the numbers go down that far, but that's unfolds over a period of years. In January 2020, everything was normal. And by the middle of April, you know, it really very distinctly was not. By the end of uh, 2020, which country's GDP did the best, which the worst? Uh, China's undoubtedly the best, um, because they at that point or, are already bouncing back. And in the at the very bottom of the league, it would be probably the UK and maybe India at that point. South Africa would be on the list as well. It's a fairly odd assortment. And there is a technical issue here in the sense that how do you count how do you count GDP? So, you know, the British were incredibly scrupulous and decided they would subtract um, the value of um hospital workers doing non-essential, non-COVID tasks that were just furloughed. So they didn't count their income towards GDP, whereas other countries did. And that makes for rather a big difference. But for the UK, it is believed to have been the largest shock in 300 years. So the UK has exceptionally long data for long time series data for GDP. And that takes us back to, it literally takes us back to 1713 um, when Britain was an agri agricultural economy and had a terrible winter and had just come off the back of fighting a war against Louis XIV. That's the French king who built the Versailles Palace. So, you know, we're talking on rather long timescales. This was a, a, an absolutely massive shock. Now, your book is shut down and you talk about shutdowns. You also talk about lockdowns. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? Yeah, I introduced that that differentiation deliberately to almost provoke your question, because um, it worked. <laughs> yeah, because the and in fact, in the German translation, they put lockdown back in. So then I had to actually slightly modify the text. So the whole thing wasn't totally inconsistent. The point of talking about shutdowns is that lockdown to me is language that came out of the polemics of the crisis. You know, obviously, at some point we started arguing with each other bitterly about what the right thing to do was. And lockdown, to me, is redolent of that controversy. Lockdown before the crisis, if you look it up on Amazon or something, it's all sort of rather shock, horror, exploitation novels about prison life. Right? Lockdown was collective punishment that was inflicted on rowdy prisoners in nasty prisons. And so if you talk about what happened to us in the last year as lockdown, you're adopting, I think, the position of the sort of embattled prisoner who has been instructed by some ghastly authoritarian government to stay at home. Now, in certain situations, in certain places, that is a reasonable description of what happened. In South Africa, for instance, in the in the townships, they, they sent armed police in and forced people into their homes. The same in India. In Paris, even, not on the same scale and with the same violence or under the same difficult circumstances, but in Paris, you literally needed a police certificate to leave your home and they would check you. And if you didn't have it, they would find you. And I think, as we know perfectly well, there isn't a place in the United States which in any way conformed to any of those models. I mean, I lived throughout the crisis in the city of New York. The only time there was a curfew and I was ordered into my home throughout that year was during the Black Lives Matter protests and the ensuing vandalism. And we had a curfew. It's the first time in my life I've ever lived under a curfew. It had nothing to do with the pandemic. We were, in fact, outdoors enjoying the beautiful summer 
And finally, the relief of being able to be in the parks. And we had to go home at 8 p.m., I think it was. And there were loud hailers on police cars, you know, instructing you to go home. I've been speaking with Columbia University professor Adam Tooze. His book is Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, weeding out the placebo effect in clinical trials and the idea of using digital tools to create a check engine light for your body. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Columbia University professor Adam Tooz. His book is Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. All of the evidence for the advanced economies that agencies like the IMF have been able to collect is that if we use their people's cell phones and mobile tracking devices, their GPS locators, all the evidence is that the mobility slowdown Um, happened weeks before governments ordered it. And it was driven by businesses, workers, families, consumers, shoppers, making up their minds that they just were going to change their ordinary patterns of life. So that kind of mechanism works. And that seems to me to be much better described in more general terms by shutdown than by lockdown. So as I say, you know, the the aim of the game is in fact to map the bits of this that were coercive and the bits of of this that were not, who was making decisions and who wasn't. And because I'm particularly interested in the economy, the, the financial markets are a particularly striking instance of just private actors for their own profit-driven reasons, fleeing for, for cover, for safety, and then far from being, as it were, forced there by the government, assisted with huge resources um, in these private searches for security. Now, we're in a spot where we have vaccines, miracle that it happened that fast. Um, and of course, we we didn't see, although we could predict that this, for instance, this D variant, which has caused everything to continue to slide, we don't know what's coming down the path. But let's just say that uh, the D variant didn't occur. All the variants 
none of them were particularly harmful. They happened to stay within the envelope of the vaccines. How fast could the global economy come back? Could it bounce back just like that? Is it that elastic? Yeah, well, large parts of it already have, including the United States, China, indeed Europe, to a very considerable extent. They're not quite back where they were, but they're heading back there fast. And the 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 vaccines give us the necessary cover, right? Because the driver of all of this is not, as it were, death per se or illness. It's the fact that those risk overwhelming the healthcare system. Remember the whole debate about flattening the curve. When you flatten the curve, you don't reduce the number of people under the curve. You just shape, modulate the way at which they arrive at the hospital. And if you can keep that curve below the hospital's critical capacity constraints, then you can actually take care of them. And that's where you get the reduction in mortality from. Right. So the vaccines have enabled us to do that in most parts of the world. So, um, you know, we're embarking on a new academic term at Columbia. It, it may work, it may not. But the reason why we can do that is that even if people do get sick, they're not going to end up in hospital and they're not going to die. So the vaccines have been absolutely critical. And one of the sort of stunning features of this crisis is that we can show how the entire global financial markets are affected by news about, you know, second, third phase testing of various types of vaccine, vaccine prototypes and, and vaccines that are coming through the pipeline. And in general, economists, economic historians are sceptical. I mean, the tech audience may find this surprising to hear, but we're sceptical about the macroscopic impact of individual innovations. It's just not altogether plausible that innovations, however significant they might be, would shake the entire world economy. They're just not big enough in relation to the entire thing to do that because the size of the global economy is oceanic. And what you're saying is, here's a waterfall and I'm pouring my waterfall into an ocean and like, you know, you shrug nice waterfall. There are People may not believe it, but there are serious scholarly debates about how far the steam engine actually drove the, the Industrial Revolution. And as people will know, I think, um, you know, it took years for the ICT tech revolution to show up in the productivity numbers of the US economy, because it, a couple of computers on a couple of fancy desks do not a productivity revolution make. But in this particular case, it's literally true that if we can get this vaccine and stick it in people's arms, we can surge GDP by 10, 20 percentage points. I think you summed it all up in one simple sentence. A tiny virus mutation in a microbe could threaten the entire world's economy. I guess we've got macro and micro and all of that all in one, all in one sentence. Yeah, that's, that is for me. Uh, the, the dizzying thing about this is, you know, how do we handle this? I mean, this is like the butterfly wings, but for real and applied to the thing on which we all, like all 7.8 billion of us, rely for our livelihoods. Um, and the fact that it becomes contingent on these kind of mutations is, uh, well, we know it, right? I mean, uh, the virologists and the epidemiologists have been telling us this, but, but now we've actually lived it. And I think there is a big question about how we go back to normality from this place. Now, we could get there by way of oblivion. We could just forget about it, which, which might in some ways be the psychologically easiest way to go. And I think there's quite a lot of evidence of that happening. Or we could find technological fixes, in which case you would really hope that we invested hard in the pipeline, right? I mean, the, the thing that blows my mind is that, that biotech 
investment is not absolutely front and center in all of the plans we talk. I mean, this I'm not I'm absolutely committed to the climate cause, but I do not understand why, say, in the European recovery program, we have digitization and green, but we do not have a third leg, which is biotech. Um, because that's the one that's actually whooped us upside the head. That's the one that actually stopped the world. And we have every reason to think it is structural, right? This wasn't an act of God. This wasn't something that came out of nowhere. On the contrary, it's totally endemic to what we do. So if we want to fly again, and we want to be in close contact with zoonotic, you know, active areas, and if we want to have um, animal-based diets, we really need to get smart about this. Bill Gates isn't wrong when he said, you know, of all of these risks that are out there, this is the one that could kill a billion people in one fell swoop. It's killed, by most people's estimates, in excess of 10 million. And I, I'm still not convinced that we've really reckoned with this, this fact, this awesome fact, like you say, a tiny mutation in something invisible just stopped us. Well, Adam, such a pleasure. You know, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. Come back and see us anytime. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today is Columbia professor Adam Tooze. His book is Shut Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. It's published by Viking. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. In many clinical trials, participants are so hopeful that they will receive benefit. They report positive results, whether or not they receive the treatment being tested. Shortly before the pandemic, I was able to speak with Dr. Erica Smith, the vice president of the Belgian company Tools for Patient. That's absolutely true. So we all know that um, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials are the gold standard for the FDA to approve drugs. Here's what happened when you didn't have it. Here's what happened when you did. Exactly. And that's because there is a profound placebo effect with many in many indications where the patients receiving the placebo or an inactive or sham treatment um, do have a very strong response. So, so, so companies are challenged to show efficacy of drugs that is greater than the placebo response. And the placebo response is a very difficult thing to understand because it's an extremely complex phenomenon. There's a psychological basis, there's a biological basis, and there are many factors that influence how the placebo response can manifest in a trial. Things like it's different in different geographies. It's, um, it's increasing over time. So in the past 30 years, the amount of placebo response drug companies see in clinical drug development is actually increasing. So essentially, we're in a little bit of a vicious cycle where the placebo response is increasing. That requires drug companies to run longer, more complex trials. Those complex trials tend to increase the placebo response. And the net effect of all of this is it, it makes drug development far more expensive and it delays the delivery of drugs to the patients that need them. So it's a very significant problem. Now, you said it could be affected by geography. What do you mm -hmm. mean by that? So certainly um, the placebo effect, as I mentioned, has been increasing over time. They have found that, that in, in some indications like pain, that um, impact is actually... Uh, 
is occurring in the United States more than in other countries in Europe, for example. And they think it may be due to, to two factors. The first is the increased complexity of trials. The second is the fact that drug companies are advertising directly to consumers. So it's increasing consumers' expectations that they're going to have um, efficacy of experimental drugs because they see these um, advertisements on television. Interestingly, the United States is one of only two countries that allows drug companies to advertise directly to consumers. But even in Europe, um, in each European country, there are certainly some that are known to have a, have a profound placebo effect. And it may be due to things like um, uh, the standard of medical care. It may be due to maybe not having access to, to similar drugs in the past, or it may just be due to cultural differences between countries. But we, we know for a fact that there are some countries where there are stronger placebo responses seen and some countries where there are lower, there are lower placebo responses seen. We tricky humans. We're so tricky. The, the brain is so know. complex. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the things we can manifest for ourselves are really quite profound. What could be done about this? You know, it's a great question, and there there are lots of different things that people have tried. Um, uh, things like things aimed at reducing patient reporting error, for example, because many outcomes in clinical trials. Pain, for example, are reported by patients. So they, they have a perception of their symptom that may be influenced by, by their psychology. So there are, there are approaches that, say, for example, will train patients to report their pain more accurately. But ultimately, these things have not eliminated the issue of the placebo response. So the placebo response really has, has two impact on clinical data. The first is it reduces the size of the treatment effect because there's some placebo response, then the, then the, the treatment efficacy has to be demonstrated above and beyond that. Um, and second, it increases the variability in clinical data. So if every patient in a trial had responded to placebo in the same way, it would be uniform and it wouldn't, it wouldn't confound data as much as it does. But because every Let me just stop you there. Yeah. What you're saying is that, that even though you might have a high placebo response, every subject in the trial is going to have a variable amount mm -hmm. in this terms of placebo That's exactly response. Right. And so, so, so the placebo response oh, no. is, is a is a characteristic of the individual patient. And so each patient has a, a placebo response that, that is related to their biology and their psychology. And because of that, it not only impacts patients in the placebo group, there is a proportion of the treatment response in patients receiving drug that can be attributed to the placebo response. And in areas like depression and pain, that can be as much as two-thirds of the total treatment effect seen. So there's there's both the, this, it's this increase in data variability um, that Tools for Patients set out to address with the technology that they began developing five years ago. Now, how do you measure it? That, that, that's a great question. Well, it's, it's not or easy. Is it, or is it predicted? Can you predict it? So essentially, the Tools for Patient, when they, when they started the company, um, it was a, a group of, of longtime colleagues and, and drug development veterans that had, that had run clinical trials and designed clinical trials and, and contended with this issue and understood firsthand how difficult it can be to deal with. So they decided to, to, to have the ambitious goal of developing a tool to predict in advance which patients would be placebo responders um, and relative to other patients in the trial. So the way that that is done um, is by essentially a personality questionnaire. A lot of the work that was done in development in the first couple, several years of the company was to develop and validate this questionnaire um, and to focus on the things that are related to having a strong placebo response. 
So we started with a, with a casting a very broad net, looked at many different personality traits, so many of which um, were uh, there was literature to support their their use. For example, people that are more optimistic tend to have a higher placebo response, as one would expect. Uh, your level of expectation of how you think you will will perform in the trial may influence the placebo response. So um, these are things that are that are measured with this questionnaire. Um, then we combine that with some just standard patient characteristics, things like age and gender and disease intensity and maybe a little bit of medical history. And we've developed a, an algorithm that's based on machine learning that will um, combine all of those factors into a single number that describes that patient's, the expected magnitude of that patient's placebo response. And it's done for each patient in the trial. And ultimately, that number can be used in the, in the statistical analysis to reduce the variability in the data. So... In a sense, we're not saying we're taking the selection criteria of the patients away so much as we're trying to figure out in advance what will be their response, and then we'll account for it statistically. That's exactly right. So there's a temptation, and, and it makes a lot of sense, that you would want to remove the patients that have a high placebo response in the trial. Nothing but dullards in your trial <laughs> to exactly. get the statistics to be right. <laughs> exactly. But really, the regulatory agencies are not favorable because they want the drugs to be tested in as general an audience as possible. So what this technology does is it allows you to keep the high placebo responders in because we can account for some of the variability that that adds to the data. Now, how do you test for that? How, is that part of the part of the thing that you do when you're trying to recruit patients? Yeah. So, so all of this, um, all of this work is done at the beginning of the trial, um, and we have invested a lot of time and money, basically doing validation in each specific disease state to understand exactly how these, how the factors that I mentioned, the personality, the the disease characteristics, and the patient demographics, how they are weighted against each each other. Um, in each disease state. And so we have a model and an algorithm that can do that at the beginning of trials for many diseases that are confounded by the placebo effect. And are the potential subjects, are they taking surveys about their attitudes? How they do you are. determine yep. attitudes? It's, yeah. it's, it's a questionnaire that's administered. It's only given once at the beginning of the trial. Um, and that's important because obviously once you have an experience with the drug, your expectation of how you will respond to the drug fundamentally changes. So at the beginning of the trial, we ask um, questions that are related to all these different personality traits, and that is uh, used as input data for our for our method. Can you give us an example of the kind of question you might ask that might be ultimately indicative? So many times it's not direct, but if you would answer one way, we would know how that would result. Sure, sure. So um, uh, one of the questions that we might ask, for example, it would be a simple statement that says, um, I'm always worried about making mistakes when dealing with other people. That is a, a, a question from our questionnaire. And then the patient answers that on a five-point scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree. And it's the, the questionnaire is about 100 questions like that that are each simple statements that the, the patient rates on a five-point scale. And in general, the questionnaire takes about 35 minutes per patient to complete. So let's say I answered that question. I'm mm -hmm. always worried about making mistakes when I'm with other people. Mm -hmm. I, from 
if I answer strongly agree versus somewhat agree yeah. versus totally agree, uh, what would that tell you about me? So that particular question may be related to something like anxiety or how anxious a person is. So if they say, yes, I, I strongly agree that I am very worried about making mistakes when dealing with other people, that might indicate that they are a more anxious person, maybe a little bit less optimistic, and, and when put into our algorithm, that may ultimately contribute to them being considered a, a lower placebo responder. But if you uh, really don't care... Exactly. That may that may mean that you're less anxious in general in social situations. People are less anxious in social situations are generally more extroverted, more optimistic, and they may have a, a stronger placebo response. Now, something like this, this sort of qualifying for uh, uh, clinical trials, uh, is that something that would need to get approved by the FDA or a regulatory agency anywhere? Yeah, well, certainly we have interacted with the regulatory agencies in the U.S. and Europe, so they're, they're certainly um, aware of the technology. We approach the regulators early in the process to make sure that they, this would not be unacceptable to them. And ultimately, all of the regulators appreciate that the placebo effect is a significant issue, that we haven't been able to find a solution as a community and that this is one potential large step forward. So they're very favorable. One of the important things is that this, this approach really does not create any new risk in the trial. So, for example, using this technology does not mean you might, you might uh, be able to demonstrate that a drug has efficacy that actually does not have efficacy. So there's no risk of a false positive. And because of that, they consider it to be very low risk. We're working through sort of the approval process with both the European and the U.S. regulators right now, but it is available for use in, in any trial. Um, we're still validating in some indications, and we have it available for use sort of off the shelf in other diseases like, like pain, for example. Well, Erica, I really appreciate you coming in. Thank and you so much. I hope you ca- come back over time and, and, and tell us what we've found. I think that as we use it, it is an experiment in itself. Yep. What it, have it we is. learned about humans and their expectations and the placebo effect? I think we'll know more after, after it's in use. Absolutely. I would love to do that. We are amassing data. We're learning a lot every day, and we're developing more predictive technologies. So um, I think it is very interesting, and we've got a novel technology that is that is allowing us to probe a different dimension of clinical drug development. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. Dr. Erica Smith is the Vice President of Business Development for Tools for Patient, located in Charleroi, Belgium. Tools for Patient is now also working on identifying the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on clinical trial data. More information is available at Tools, the number four, Patient. That's toolsforpatient.com. When we perceive a personal health problem, we often consult a healthcare professional. But how do we know the overall state of our health? Dr. Daniel Kraft is the chief correspondent for Tech Nation Health. Well, if you think about it, normally we only get uh, the state of our bodies checked traditionally in that once a year primary care overall physical exam visit, if you even get that at all. Or... Um, unfortunately, if you end up in the emergency room or urgent care or worse, and so we spend 0.000001% of our lives, hopefully, in a clinical setting. And so the data from our bodies is collected very intermittently, you know, only in the four walls of a traditional clinic or ER or ICU, you know, whether it's your blood pressure or your other vital signs or your labs. So that intermittent data 
tends to lead to our very reactive sick care model of care, where we tend to be reactive. We wait for the patient to show up with a heart attack, a stroke, or in my world of oncology, often presenting with late-stage cancer. And I think the big potential of our new connected mobile digital age is to be much more continuous with our, our data. That's much more, not just data, but insights that are personalized, that are actionable, and can start to bring care anytime, anywhere, proactively, early, before you end up you know, needing that ER visit or, or worse. So I think where we're moving is that we can start to collect this sort of health data almost anytime, anywhere. And it doesn't always have to be from your blood pressure cuff or from your scale, it can be other sorts of signals. It can be simple uh, sleep data picked up by when you put your, your smartphone down and when you pick it up. Or now many apps for free will enable you to track your sleep, sometimes using a wearable device that can give you a pretty good gauge of, of your sleep patterns and how they might change. Several devices from standard Apple watches uh, to other wearables and Fitbits and beyond now can start to track your heart rate and your heart rate variability, uh, your respiratory rate and your temperature. And so if we zoom back and think about all those data feeds, none of them by themselves are helpful, but when you put them together, it can give us what I like to call a bit of a check engine light for the body. Just like a modern car today has 400 or more sensors, you don't know about most of the sensors, you don't even care about the sensor and piston number three. What you should care about is when the software connects all the dots between the data and gives you your own personal check engine light. Say, hey Daniel, time you take yourself into the mechanic before you blow a gasket. And so there's a real potential for that to happen. Some great examples of that that have emerged in the last couple of years. The whole idea that you switch the, you flip the, the, the script, you go in, you go, doc, this hurts or this has been happening. And, they, and the doctor says, well, now we're going to run a bunch of tests as opposed to the doctor saying, well, let's just see all the data we've been collecting on you. Maybe that'll tell us how you got to this point. Right. So if you've been collecting that data, this is tremendously valuable on the spot the moment you notice there's a problem. Right, it puts it into context, the idea of continuous monitoring that could be put into context to you. So if you're driving a VW Bug or a Tesla, they both have four wheels, but they have very different engineering, et cetera, and different sort of sensors and different data streams. So I think, you know, part of our virtual visit or physical visit of the future is that, you know, they're tapping into your smartwatch data. In fact, with the new update of iOS 15, this September of 2021, now you're able to share much more readily the digital data from your scale, your blood pressure cuff, your glucometer, your sleep, your exercise to your clinician. Now, I'm a doctor. I don't want to see a patient showing up with reams of data. What I want are the insights and the changes. Often, what are the changes from baseline? So I know in my personal experience, when I look at my smartwatch data, my resting sleeping heart rate is, is 55. But when I happen to get sick with a cold or something worse, I often see my heart resting heart rate when I sleep or during the day go up. That's a simple element that might be measured. What if that's changing with my sleep patterns or my smartwatch or phone can listen to my cough? It might be predicting that I have a particular issue. And in, in the last year, we've seen several studies, one out of Stanford using an Apple watch to be able to predict who has COVID when they're even early and asymptomatic. So they might go not just get tested, but get into social isolation and not spread the disease. That also seems to work for influenza. Uh, which is another common element that's going to be blending with COVID. Uh, it might be the sound of your cough. Apps like CoughVid can determine is that a cough from the flu or a cold or potentially COVID. And so hopefully getting that data early enables you to take early action and, and hopefully prevent uh, disease progression, morbidity, or, or even mortality. And then on the non-mortality side of things, uh, there are now wearables that fit on the form factor of a ring, called the Aura Ring. And recently published, they found that in, in women who had just gotten 
pregnant. They didn't even know they were pregnant, but they could see changes in temperature picked up by this simple wearable ring that indicated that they were pregnant. So that might be an earlier uh, ability to, uh, to, to give you an early check engine light to, oh, hey, there's a bun in the oven. We're in this exponential age. The fact that what used to take an entire sleep lab down the street from me at Stanford, you know, tracking respiratory rate, temperature, motion, can all fit onto a lightweight ring with a battery that lasts several days is pretty incredible. And the fact that that can also connect to helping coach you for better sleep or better activity. There's another wearable device called Whoop, which is being used often by athletes to help them train. So these are sort of forms of not always check engine lights, but guidance, sort of a GPS for the body. If you're trying to train for a marathon or you're trying to manage your diabetes, or you're trying to lose weight, they can give you that integrated, you know, personalized, not just data, but actionable insights that you can use for your health or in the setting of an emergency. If you fall, several smartwatches now can detect that fall. And if you don't get up, they can call 911 or call your mother. Um, there are now smart homes that can listen again through your uh, smart speakers if you've had a fall or, or ask if you're okay. So we're going to see this real integration of different signals from different forms, not just wearables. It could be from invisibles, like again, your Wi-Fi picking vital, vital signs. It can be your from your voiceables, from your voice, from your sockables, your clothes now can detect health. From hearables, little, you know, your hearing aid can now uh, obviously uh, enhance your hearing, but many of them can play music. They can track your vital signs. They can give you coaching. If you might have a patient who's got uh, cognitive issues or it might be lost. So I think it's a, a real golden age now to take our new sets of data, make them personalized, actionable, and even crowdsourced not to just give you a check engine light for your own body in an acute event, but even, let's say, a check engine light for your community, picking up early signs of the next pandemic while it's still an endemic uh, and, and beyond. Well, seldom am I sorry that we're on the radio and wish I was on television, but I sure was because I'd sure like everybody to see the look in your face when you said, and I just don't want to see this huge amount of damn mountain of data coming at me. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's okay. You told everybody to go out and do that. So now we got to get it so it's, as you say, actionable. It has to be understood. And that's where things are sort of heading. Again, I spent lots of time working in intensive care units. You get reams of data and you kind of learn to interpret them. But with the power of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, we're now able to sift through some of that data, not just through the check engine light for home and your body, but that sick intensive care unit patient. Are they showing signs of sepsis, a blood infection? Normally that shows up when the patient's heart rate goes up and their blood pressure drops and you start a blood culture and antibiotics. But if we can pick that up, you know, hours and sometimes days early, we can do early proactive measures. So these things are starting with AI, big data, the kind of super check engine light in the, in the intensive care unit and starting to move to our homes and skilled nursing facilities so patients don't back, back, bounce back and forth and we can really prevent readmissions and hopefully diseases from occurring or progressing in the first place. Well, Daniel, thanks for coming in. See you soon. All right. Thanks, Mara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is a physician scientist and innovator. More information is available at danielcraftmd.net. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell. 
with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.